We've been doing lessons this entire year called Move. It's the big theme. Uh, and, and we're wanting to move out of the chaos we've been in for now a year and a half. And we're starting to see maybe some light at the end of the tunnel. I thought that back in the summer, and boy, it darkened up again. But I hope we'll be able to see some light at the end of the tunnel soon. But we're in our series on the book of Romans, and we're just kind of working our way through the text. Some people say to me sometimes, boy, Leslie, you just kind of like to work through the passages. I mean, you, you put a lot of Bible in your lessons. Well, I love expository preaching, which just means you let the text tell you what God wants you to, to know. And so we're in the book of Romans, we're coming to Romans today, and let me say a word about the importance of Scripture. I hope you have your Bibles with you today, but one of the things we need to realize as Christians, and this is becoming more and more all the time, is that we've got to be a people who look at the world through the lens of Scripture. All of us look at life through some lens, some set of values. And, and if you're not careful, the world is going to convince you that there's a different set of lenses you need to look at life through. And let me just say to you, let's be what has been so traditional about our fellowship. We've always claimed to be a people of the book. And that book, of course, being the Bible. Let's continue to be a people of the book. And one thing I love about the church over the years is that I have found that as long as I give people book, chapter, and verse, the majority of our brethren are good with that. Now, you always have those that will be exceptions. But by and large, we do respect the authority of Scripture and what God has said through His Word. And so I want to say to you, let's continue to use the Bible as that filter. Now... Paul is in Corinth. It's the winter of A.D. 57. He's taking a break. I mean, he's got three months that he can't move. It's winter time, And so, and by the way, Corinth would be about, if you look at it, it would be about like Louisville, Kentucky. And so if you can imagine being in Louisville, Kentucky back then, that's what the temperatures during the wintertime would be like. That's the particular uh, spot on, on the map where it lines up with. And and so here's Paul, and as Paul is taking this break, Paul, of course, is on his way to Jerusalem with a large collection to give to the poor saints there, but then he's going to be off to Rome. And his plan is to go to Rome, use Rome as the base to launch a mission effort into Spain. That's Paul's plan. God had a different plan for him, but that was Paul's plan. And so Paul is hearing things about the church in Rome that's concerning him. Uh, Some of his friends have gone back there, among them Priscilla and Aquila, several relatives have. Uh, If you read the last chapter of Rome, he he, he greets several people that he knows that have gone back to Rome after the exile under Claudius. What developed is that as the Jews returned back to Rome, they're encountering their Gentile brethren and, and they're developing all kinds of problems as a result of it. The Jewish brethren they're judging they're they're telling the Gentiles you need to listen to us the Gentile brethren are doing right the opposite they're saying we did fine without you for the last six years we don't need you now and so why don't you just go back to where you came from and of course Paul's hearing this going wait a minute guys we're all part of the body of Christ we have got to figure out somehow how to live together and the best way Paul knew to do that was to go back and say can I tell you how all of us were saved and if it's true that we're all saved the same way 
then can we realize that we all are in this together? And so that's where Paul is going. And so we come to Romans 3, after Paul had laid out Romans 1, Gentiles, people like you and me. I'm a Gentile. And so in, in Romans chapter 1, he had laid out that we Gentiles, we are under the condemnation of God because of sin. Romans chapter 2, you Jews are not any better off, or Paul would say we Jews are not any better off. We too are under the condemnation of sin. And so he gets to chapter 3, and he's again dealing with this concept of the role that the Jews played in this process of God bringing the world to himself. And he says, so what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Of course, that was the sign of being a Jew was circumcision. He said, is there an advantage? And notice his response up there. Much in every way. Now, in parentheses, you almost put theoretically. Because that's what he's going to say. He's saying there should have been a lot of advantage. But he says, but there wasn't. There was a problem. He says, the primary thing God did that gave us the advantage is he gave us the very words of God. We were given the Torah. I mean, we had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Join in with me as you will. Now, you got all those books of the Old Testament. God spoke through us. Actually, he didn't. He wanted to. He intended to. But we stopped him. We wouldn't do what God called us to do. And so he says, Israel failed. And, and the point he's going to make is, so what do we do? This great plan of God started with Abraham going all the way until the Messiah came. I mean, Israel failed in her job. What do we do? And notice his response. He says, what if some faithful? What if the majority of Israel were? Does that somehow, that unfaithfulness of Israel, nullify God's faithfulness? And his response is no. He says, listen, we failed, God didn't. He continued to work through our failures to accomplish his purposes. And watch what he says. Let God be true and every human being a liar. If we all lie, God will still be faithful to his promises. And you have this amazing quote from Psalm 51. David's, remember that psalm David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba? Of where he says, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. I mean, God, I'm a sinner. I know I am. And you're right in judging me as a sinner. And Paul grabs that passage and pulls it out and says, listen, even though we as Israelites failed, God did all. And then Paul had to pause for a moment to deal with the problem. I want you to notice the first line up here. This is verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? One of the things that Paul's going to illustrate here, Israel failed, it simply exalted God's faithfulness in the process. I don't know how many of y'all remember the old Tide commercials. I mean, back in the day, Tide, you know, that's back when washing powders would put on commercials. You don't see much of that anymore. But back in the day, it was all about how, how white your socks could get. 
And I don't know if you remember, but they would say, now here is a pair of socks washed with your standard washing powders, and over here is tied socks. And of course, they were always whiter than everybody else's. And therefore, you need to go and buy them. You know, I mean, you need to buy tied because, boy, it makes your socks so white. That's the argument that's being made here. And, and Paul says, you know, there are some people who are accusing us falsely. And they're saying, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, I mean, why is God condemning us? Paul had several critics like this who would listen to him preach and would say, now, Paul, you say we're saved by grace. And, and since we're saved by grace and God is a gracious God, then why not just sin more so that God can pour more grace on us? And Paul said, are you serious? That's, by the way, over in chapter 6. Let's just go ahead and sin more so that God can give us more grace. And Paul says, absolutely not. Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. In other words, let us be unfaithful so that God's faithfulness can be elevated. And he said, their condemnation is deserved. It's just. That's ridiculous. Paul says, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that that's the way it turned out. And so Paul has to kind of take a detour here just for a moment. And so he goes back to his main argument. And notice what he says here. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. Now you say, wait a minute. I thought he just said we did. He did. I mean, verse 1, do we have an advantage? Yes. Problem is we didn't use it. So he now comes back and he says, so did we really have any advantage? He says, no. In reality, we didn't. He says, for we have already made the charge that Jew and Gentiles are like are all under the power of sin. And then I love what Paul does. Paul here reminds me of a Church of Christ preacher in 1965 in a gospel meeting in Ripley, Mississippi. I mean, he gets up there, and I, I don't know if y'all remember old-fashioned gospel meetings where the preacher would get up there and start quoting, and then he would just quote verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. I mean, he would just keep, keep throwing the scriptures out there. And that's what Paul does. I mean, he unloads a barrage, and you see them here. These are all quotes, one right after the other, from Psalms and Isaiah. And all of them are the same thing. I mean, Paul's making the same argument in every verse here. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And he just keeps on quoting through the Psalms and Isaiah. And his point that he's making is that if, if God is taken out of the picture, all of us as human beings would go astray. All of us. Now, you need to understand something about this. When I was younger, I would look at this verse and I'd say, Paul, that's not accurate. There's always been people that seek God. I mean, I mean, Abraham sought God. David sought God. Daniel sought God. I mean, people have always sought God. The point he's making is not that people seek God when God reveals himself to them. Of course people do that. He's saying, though, that if God removes himself from the picture, what happens to humanity? And the response is... We all go into sin. You see, when I look back on my life, my life, and you probably have maybe some experiences similar to this, I'm not who I am because I'm righteous. I'm who I am because other people were righteous. You see, I don't curse because I chose not to curse. I don't curse because my dad threatened to kill me if I did. I'm serious. I mean, my dad said, I hear a bad word come out of your mouth, whoo, you know, 
I, I tell people, I, I was raised, you know, one of those just, you know, you don't curse, you don't drink, you don't lie, you know, I mean, right down the line. But I did it because I scared to death what my dad would do if he found out. And, uh, and of course, anytime I sit down with people and we begin to talk about our teenage years, everybody starts confessing all the stuff they did that their parents didn't find out about, right? I'm still waiting to hear what my boys did. I mean, one of these days, I know when I'm bad and sick, they're going to say, by the way, Dad, we need to tell you something. Here it comes, you know. And, and, and so, again, it's the influences of godly parents, godly teachers, uh, godly uh, elders and, and deacons and ministers who shaped and molded my life. Same is true of you. And so, Paul is saying, listen, you take God out of the picture, and it's not a pretty picture. And so he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Here's what he's saying in this text. He's saying, by the way, we respect Scripture. Scripture says it, so let's believe it. That's all he's saying here. And then he lays the foundation statement. This is one of those texts, if you, if you haven't highlighted it, underlined it, if you haven't put an asterisk by it, it is such a fundamental, foundational statement. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in the sight of God by the works of the law. Boy, I ne by the way, that wasn't preached when I was growing up. That was another one of those texts we just passed by. But what he's saying here is that your righteousness is not based on all of these works that you do. For Jews, it was a whole list of things. Circumcision. All the men had to be circumcised. Sabbath keeping. Observance of the Day of Atonement. Passover. Pentecost. All the feast days. Clean, unclean food. Making sure you don't eat any pork, any catfish. You know, the kinds of food that a lot of us love, the Jews couldn't eat. And disassociation from the Gentile and pagans. I mean, getting away from the idolatry of the world, especially meat offered to idols. A problem in the first century that we don't experience today, but boy, it was a huge issue for early Christians because when you went to Publix or when you went to Kroger in the first century, the meat in the meat market had been offered at some pagan temple earlier in the day. I mean, that's where most of the meat came from. And so the big question is, if this steak had been offered to Zeus, can I eat it without somehow engaging in worship to Zeus? I mean, now we, we listen to that and go, you got to be kidding me, Right? No, that was a problem they were struggling with. Now, I know you're thinking, I don't try to be saved by any of those. No, we don't. We simply put in their place Christian you know, equal values. In other words, instead of circumcision, we'll put in baptism. Instead of Sabbath keeping and observance of the holy day, we'll put church attendance. You know, when I was growing up, I thought Hebrews 10, you know, 25 was that right there beside John 3, 16. I mean, God so loved the world, and you better not forsake the assembly. You know, those two were almost equal in nature. And, and, and again, y'all, I've got to tell you, I was brought up with such a legalistic view that, boy, if you just missed one service, you were toast. I'm serious. I, I, I've told this, uh, and, I, and I'll tell it again. June and I got married on a Sunday afternoon, Mother's Day, May 13, 1979, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. 
And the worst part about getting married at 4 o'clock in the afternoon is that as you're heading to the Smoky Mountains for your honeymoon, the biggest question is, are we going to stop and go to church somewhere? Now, y'all are looking at me going, you're crazy. I know it. I was. But boy, it just, I mean, it was the biggest theological problem we had ever faced. And just so that you know, we didn't. We went on to the Smokies. All right. Jesus dealt with this problem. You see Mark 3, he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And they're watching him. God in the flesh, they're watching him. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? That's how important the Sabbath was. And Jesus, I mean, he looks at them, he questioned them. And y'all look at the last phrase down here. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at the stubborn hearts that they had. This is God. Looking at human beings going, this is what you've turned my law into? I mean, he would say later, listen, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You turn over, and, and, and of course, it's a heart problem. It all has to do with your, your belief in God and your faith in God and understanding what he's doing. Matthew 23, same situation. They're tithing all the little herbs in their gardens, but Jesus said, you've ignored the essentials, justice, mercy, faithfulness. That's the foundation of your relationship with God. It's not whether or not you give a tenth of your mint that came out of your garden. So Jesus just pounds away at that mentality. And so notice what Paul says. But now apart from the law, God had to come up with a different way. And so apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And then he makes sure his Jewish brethren understand it. It was predicted by the law and the prophets. What I am preaching to you is found in the Torah. It's not through the Torah, but it's through what the Torah pointed to. And so in 22 comes the foundational, the ultimate foundation of our relationship with God as Christians. I mean, this is it. If you want to understand how you relate to God, it boils down to this one. This righteousness... Our right standing before God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I I think the NIV probably misses it here. Uh, I think a better translation is uh, the complete Jewish Bible. I like the way they render it. It is a righteousness that comes from God through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. You see, in Greek... Faith in and faith of is the same words. And so we have to make a judgment call. Is, is Paul trying to say it's through the faithfulness of Jesus or, faithfulness or faith in Jesus? Well, he talks about the end part at the last of the verse. Notice that, to all who believe. There's the end part. And so I think the earlier part of what he's trying to say is God's righteousness comes because Jesus was faithful. I'll never be faithful. Not not complete faithfulness like Jesus was. Jesus came and guess what? Never sinned. Not one single solitary time. And it was his faithfulness and then death on the cross that gives me the ability to be declared righteous before God because I believe in Jesus. And so he says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We've all sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And then again, boy, this chapter is just packed with these verses. He said, can I tell you how it works? 
early 80s, June and I are, we're, we're just starting our ministry career. I'm in graduate school. And I'm taking a class about Jesus. I mean, it's a whole semester about Jesus. And the term paper, 15-page term paper, paper that year was, why did Jesus have to die? That was the question. Why did Jesus have to die? And I remember spending that, that semester thinking through that, reading everything I could read on it, and really not coming up with a good answer. And so what I ended up writing in my term paper, which, by the way, I got a B on, which I was very disappointed, because I still believe it today, just like I did 40 years ago. But I concluded in the term paper that the reason for Jesus having to die is ultimately contained in the mystery of God. That God knows why. You know, isn't it interesting that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Lord, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was trying in the Garden to figure out why. But he says, but if I've got to drink it, I'll do it. Your will be done, not mine. And so even Jesus is struggling with the whole concept of the atonement there in Gethsemane. And what I concluded in the paper is that what you find in Scripture instead is not an explanation of why he had to die as much as illustrations of why he had to die. Images that give you just a brief glimpse. But put all together says, okay, hopefully this will help you. Look at the text here. He begins with, we're all justified freely by his grace. And that word justify is a courtroom scene. Of where he says, listen, can I explain how it works? Here's how it works. You, you go into court. You've committed a crime. And you stand before the judge. Here's a prosecuting attorney. Here's a defense attorney. And the question is, are you guilty or innocent? And the argument that Paul makes is, is that when we walk into that courtroom, guess who's sitting in the judgment seat? Jesus is. Guess who the prosecuting attorney is? Jesus is. Guess who the defense attorney is? Jesus is. And by the way, if you're on Jesus' side, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to walk out free. That's the whole point he makes here is that when Jesus is both the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney and the judge, and he's already paid the penalty for you, if you trust him, you're walking out of that courtroom an innocent person. Just a little glimpse of what happens. He says, by the way, we're also saved through the redemption that came by the Messiah, Jesus. Moves from justification to redemption. Redemption is another theme, and it comes from the idea of slavery in the first century. You see, about half the Roman Empire were slaves. And every day there were buying and selling of slaves. It went on. I mean, you could go to Walmart, buy you a couple of slaves. You could go to Costco when they had discounts, get them at a cheaper price. I mean, slaves were being bought and sold all the time. But one of the things that could happen is, is that if I saw a particular slave that I really liked and I became friends with, I could go and purchase him and then set him free. He'd be declared a freeman, literally a term used in the first century. And that process was called redemption. And so Paul says, guess what? We were held as slaves to sin. Jesus came, paid the price, and set us free. Now again, it's just a glimpse. Don't try to take that too far. You see, the problem most of us, when we start to think about these things too far, is we start asking questions like, for instance, who did Jesus pay the price to? 
Did he pay the price to God? Did he pay the price to Satan? Who did he redeem us from? Again, that question is taking the, the imagery too far. Don't, don't try to do that because you'll skew it every time. And then he says, a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Something the Jews definitely understood because it represents the fact that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, take the blood of the goat, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, make atonement for the sins of the Jewish people. But in the case of Jesus, he went into the Holy of Holies in heaven before the Ark of the Covenant that's there before God and sprinkled his own blood, making atonement for our sins. Something that every Jew in those churches understood immediately. And so he grabs three different images. And there are many more that Paul would refer to. But th- these are the three big ones. And said, so that's what Jesus has done for us. And how do you receive it? By faith. It comes through faith. It begins with faith. And it ends with faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. And then he goes back and he says, by the way, you know he left the sins of everybody prior unpunished. Now now you think, wait a minute, unpunished? Eternally unpunished. Judgment has not occurred yet. And so Paul says, by the way, at the cross, Jesus' atonement went backwards to Adam and forward to as many people as will be alive until I come back. That sacrifice covers all of humanity. And that's the point that he makes. It'll be repeated over in the book of Hebrews. And so God becomes the one who's just and the one who justifies those. And again, look at the theme, who have faith in Jesus. I love the way the voice puts this. Look at the voice's translation. This expression of God's restorative justice, putting us back to the image of God we were created to be, displays in the present that he is just and righteous and that he makes right those who trust and commit themselves to Jesus. And so he ends the sermon very simply. Where's boasting? See, the Jews have been boasting. That was the problem when they came back. They're telling the Gentiles, we're God's people. We have the covenant. We have circumcision. You need to listen to us. And Paul says, "Eh." Spiritual boasting disappears when we all realize we're saved the same way. All of us. There's no place for it. Why? Because of the law that requires works? No. There's the whole problem. You see, if if, if you want to judge people based on works, there's always somebody that does more than you. Always. You know, one thing about me is I've never been able to memorize Scripture well. I mean, I just can't do it. I mean, when I was at Freed Hardman, you had to memorize all these scriptures when we were in Bible classes. And you say, well, well, Leslie, you know a lot of Bible. Yeah, but I know it generically. You know, I'm one of those guys where they say, where does the Bible say this? And I'll say, well, it's over in Deuteronomy somewhere. Just read the whole book. Yeah. Whereas some of my dear friends who are preachers, they can quote you just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of verses. You know. I mean, there's always somebody who can do a better job than you. And, and, and I've never found anybody who can sing better than Blake, but I suspect they're still out there. You know, I mean, there's always somebody that if you want to put your skills up against theirs, they're going to beat you every time. That's not the basis of our judgment. You see, the 13-year-old who confesses Jesus and comes up out of the water is as justified as the 95-year-old who spent his life, you know, being an elder in the church 
they're justified the same way. Their faith in Jesus Christ. Rules, works of the law. Brothers and sisters, they can't justify us. We can never do enough. And, and I've heard so many good Christians on their deathbed said, I just hope I've done enough. Can I go ahead and answer that question? You haven't and you won't. I'm not saved because I have done enough. I'm saved because Jesus did enough. That's it. End of story. Now you say, Leslie, does that mean that we, we don't do anything? No. I mean, again, that's one of those things Paul said. Are you going to really go that far and say, because we're saved by faith, works doesn't matter? Of course not. You turn over to James, and James says, where in the world is this belief that intellectual consent is all that there is? He says, faith always manifests itself by works. That's how you know it's real faith. And so don't, don't go and move faith out of the way and try to put works back as the foundation. Keep faith there, and the works will follow. And so he goes on and he says, Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, not at all. We uphold the law. There is a purpose for rules and laws. But that purpose is not justification. That purpose is sanctification. The transforming us into the image of Christ. Rules and works of the law are of Christ transform us with the help of the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Christ. Why do we have the New Testament? We have the New Testament because within it are all of those guidelines for how we become more like Jesus. Which, by the way, is why in Acts 2.38, when they were asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, you repent. You need to be baptized in the name, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins can be washed away. And then I grew up not hearing the most important part. And that's the last part of the verse. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives us this incredible gift that if we'll just acknowledge and begin to live according to his guidance, that spirit says, listen, I'm not going to force you, but I'll help you. I'll help you line your life up with what God wants you to be so that you can reflect the image of God which was seen in Jesus Christ the way you're supposed to. And that's why we do what we do. I will always be saved by one simple thing. My Jesus was faithful. And if I put my trust in that, whether I get to my deathbed and say, do I, have I done enough or not? It won't matter because he has. We got an invitation song, I Am Resolved. Beautiful invitation song, which is really the answer to you know, the question that they gave to Peter. You know, what do we do? Resolve yourself to come to know Jesus, whether it's through baptism to begin with or through walking in the Spirit with Jesus after you become a child. If you need to become a child or if you have another need, let us know what it is. Together we stand and sing.